Hi, I'm Adam, and this is The Service Design Show, episode 178. Hi, my name is Mark Fontaine, and welcome back to a brand new episode of The Service Design Show. On this show, we explore what's beneath the surface of service design, what are the hidden and invisible things that make a difference between success and failure, all to help you design great services that have a positive impact on people, business, and our planet. Our guest in this episode is the one and only Adam Lawrence. Amongst many things, you might know Adam as the co-founder of This Is Service Design Doing and This Is Service Design Thinking, the co-organizer of the Global Service Jam or the Co-Creation School. Today, we're going to talk about the things that can't be expressed through words. Yeah, I know, that's going to be interesting. Think about this for a second and see if you recognized it. Even though design is known and celebrated for using other, more rich forms of communication, like visuals, Lego, or even roleplay, in a business environment, we often still refer to words as our primary way of communicating. I'll give you an example. When we want to capture the moment of waiting in a customer journey, what do we do? Well, very often, in our strive to be short, snappy and efficient, we just write the word on a sticky note and get on with the rest of our work. You probably know this already, but just think about all the clues that you're leaving out. All the nuances that go missing when you just write the word waiting. There's of course a reason why we draw a sad or angry emoji to that sticky note. Or maybe even include a photo of the situation. These details add meaning to the moment. Why is that important? Well, your role as a service design professional is to help business drive decision making. And you know that we can make better and faster decisions when we present information in a richer and more nuanced way. So if that's the case, when we know that using forms of communication beyond words help us to do a better job, What's holding us back from bringing a more designly way of working into our day to day? Well, that's exactly what we're going to explore in today's episode. If you stick around till the end, you'll know how to grow the appreciation for visuals in a company culture that's ruled by numbers, how to create space for experimentation when everyone around you seems to be risk averse, and maybe most importantly, how to get your colleagues to knock on your door rather than you having to sell your way of working to them. If you enjoy exploring topics like this and are looking for ways to grow as a service design professional and connect with like-minded peers, then our Circle community might just be the place for you. Let me quickly introduce the circle if you haven't heard about it yet. Think of the circle as the service design dream team you wish you had around you each and every day. Let me explain. 
Two years ago, I started The Circle as a space for in-house service design professionals to connect, share experiences and learn from each other. Inside The Circle, we host multiple events every month focused on the practical aspects of doing service design within organizations. Being on the inside brings its own unique challenges and within the circle we want to address these challenges together. Circle members come together to share their wins and failures, openly discuss the messy side of their work. In our recent sessions we explored topics such as emerging trends that will shape our field in the coming years, the potential of trauma-informed service design identifying where we can add the most value in the customer experience lifecycle and we continuously add new topics each and every month to this list. If you're an in-house service design professional seeking a service design dream team, a team that empowers you to overcome organizational inertia and create lasting impact, then the Circle community might just be the perfect fit for you. Head over to servicedesignshow.com slash circle to learn how you can apply for a membership. You'll also find the link in the show notes of this episode. That about wraps it up for the intro. Now it's time to sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation with Adam Lawrence. Let the show begin. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Hi, Mark. It's good to be back. It's been a long it's time. Been, it's been a long time. It's been way overdue. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I haven't looked it up, but I think you were one of the first 10 episodes, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was really at the beginning. We had a few other contacts in between, of course, and several things around the jam uh, when you accompanied the jam a few times. Thanks for that. Yeah, so that's true. Uh, always yeah. been good to see you. Yeah. So this is the sort of the official interview, the second interview, but you've you've been on uh, the show before. And um, um, nevertheless, for the people who have been living under a rock and haven't heard about you and what you do, uh, maybe it would be good to start with a brief intro uh, about who you are and what you do these days. Sure. My name's Adam, Adam Lawrence. Um, I'm German, grew up in the UK, and I've been working in, I guess you can call it service design since the mid-2000s. I'm best known for two things, I guess. One of them is the Global Service Jam, which is the world's biggest service design event, in which everybody who listens to this show should get involved in because it's great fun. It's a great place to learn and connect and get better if you're good already. The other one is the book, This is Service Design Doing. This is Service Design Methods, which I co wrote with Mark Stickdorn, Jakob Schneider, and Marcus Hormes, and 301 other amazing people. Hmm. So generally, I'm working with large organizations, helping them change the way they, they approach value creation, help them to do things differently, to be more down to earth, to be more evidence-based, and so on. And a lot of folks call that service design. We call it whatever our clients call it. Sounds like a very good strategy. I have a question about your name, yeah. Adam Lawrence. But when I look in your email signature, there is a St. John in yeah, there. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah, it's pronounced St. John. Um, people who've seen the film Four Weddings and a Funeral may remember a scene where Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, gets very uh, confused about pronouncing that name. But uh, it's just a middle name, but I use it now and again because there are 
quite a few Adam Lawrences out there, including an excellent photographer in New York and a John Travolta character from a movie. Uh, so if I don't want to get confused with those, then uh, oh. I put in the Sinjin in between. Yeah, And my mm. Twitter handle is Adam St. John. Yeah. Well, happy that we have that on record. Um, Adam, the last time you appeared on the show, we didn't have a lightning round, which we do have right now. I have mm -hmm. five questions for you. Mm -hmm. Goal is to get to know you a bit better as a person next to the professional. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Fantastic. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Fantastic. All right. What did you want to become when you were a kid? A vet. A vet. I did end up studying zoology, but didn't take it any further than that. What's always in your fridge? Um, always in my fridge is oat milk. Oat milk. Got it. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a good one for you. What is your go-to karaoke song? My go-to karaoke song? Oh, that's a really hard one. I like doing duets. So a good classic duet, like from Greece or from like Islands in the Stream or something like that. But if I'm alone, maybe it's going to be a Tom Jones number uh, or Rhinestone Cowboy. All right, thank you. What is your hidden talent, which won't be hidden after you announce it here? I am absolutely amazing at packing cars. Uh, <laughs> I once had a car that was full to the roof. Friends told me that nothing else could fit in there, and I managed to repack it to add a bed and two armchairs. There you go. And uh, fifth and final question, uh, which people might actually be super interested about is, do you recall the first moment you sort of heard about service design? I do. Um, in the mid-2000s, I was writing a blog um, around where I saw theater, everything around theater in the world of commerce and business and services and so on. Uh, and some people popped up on the blog, being very generous with support and comments and suggestions. Among them were Joe Pine of the Experience Economy and Birgit Marga of the Service Design Network. And they started using words around me like experience design, service design, and so on. At the same time, my colleague Marcus bumped into the LiveWork guys um, in a conference in India at John Thackeray's Doors of Perception conference. And he came back from the summer and I came out of my sort of blog frenzy and we said to each other, what we do has a name, and that name is service design. If we go back down memory lane, I think mm. I remember how I got in touch with you in the first place. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, you were writing on workplayexperience.com, right? That was, yeah, I think was it was that a, a title? Blog, blog, yeah, that was the name of the blog, yeah. It's now the company name. I think it was on Blogspot back in the day, yeah. And you were starting a series of it, it it felt like a start of a book you had like chapter one and two yeah, ready something yeah, right there yeah, right yeah, yeah i did there was a i still have that somewhere as a pdf it was about the very basics of, of theatricality uh, in in our work so things like lighting and costume but also things like dramatic structure and timing and status and role and things like this so yeah i plan to do more on that um it ended up i guess weaving into the other books that i've written i haven't come back to that one directly yeah and i think i signed up to get chapter three and four yeah, which yeah. So never still, materialized i'm a disappointment <laughs> i know that <laughs> well you you superseded them with other uh works but i think that's the way how uh, our pets Crossed. I think so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, um, Adam, we uh, uh, agreed to do sort of a exploratory chat today. Yeah, Maybe yeah. verbal prototyping. We'll see uh, where this takes us. And as far as I'm concerned, if we end up walking away with better questions than we started with, then uh, our mission will be a success. 
And the topic or the theme that we want to unpack is implicit versus explicit design. Yeah, right? some, something like that. Because something like that. <laughs> this is really we're at the crux of the matter immediately about things that don't go into words really well. You know, I come from a background of theatre mostly. You know, I've been a, a theatre maker for almost three decades uh, as an actor and director and stuff like this, and. In theatre and in design, we do lots of things and we deal with lots of things that are really important that don't fit into words or numbers very well. They're very hard to express in those traditional channels, but they can be expressed in other ways and communicated in other ways. So they're implicit. They're between the lines. They're in the space between what we do. And then we try and put these things on post-its. You know, we try and put them into research reports and things like that. And it's really, really hard. Um, and I think there are some very interesting issues around that, about who it includes and who it excludes, and how we can work better with these really, really important concepts that don't really fit into language. And just to, in, in case folks are confused, um, I live down the road here from two great sport fashion manufacturers here in Germany. You can guess who they are. Um, and things that they do need to be, for example, cool. Define cool for me on a, on a post. You can't do that. You have to see something and then you know it's cool or it, or it was cool and maybe it will be cool soon. You know, they have to work using prototyping and so on, using mood boards and so on to express things which don't fit into words. And that's really tricky for other folks to get their head around sometimes. Yeah, so trying to capture things that are hard to capture in language. Yeah. And um, when I was thinking about that, uh, I was thinking if there's anyone who can do this, it should be the design community, right? Uh, uh, we we pride ourselves to use a lot of visual language, mm -hmm. to, like you said, prototyping, maybe enacting, and still you somehow feel that words and verbal communication are sort of predominant holding us back like how where what what yeah yeah I think what, so. what scratched the itch uh, for you <laughs> it's like an ongoing frustration you know um we we are good at this we're much better than most industries at this um at least some of us are but that's also one of the causes of friction that we have with our counterparts in organizations with our sponsors with quote unquote non-designers, yeah, um, is that they like things in black and white. They don't like ambiguity, yeah, and some of us find that frustrating as well. Um, they like things short and sweet. They don't want to spend time understanding something. And the way that as a species that we've evolved to express things in a short and, and, and sweet way and in, in a concise way is to use language to do that. I mean, I mean, the notes on a post-it, the, the, the single quote from a user, you know, these are the classic things, the user stories, all that kind of stuff. They're fabulous tools. They're just brilliant. And they miss a lot of the really, really important stuff. Back in the 80s, I was working in the uh, automotive industry. I had a great boss who was very classic. Um, this was the time of TQM. I was actually at their competitor, Honda. But this is that time, and everything was very, very uh, results-driven and so on. And he once said to me, you know, Adam, if, it's, if, if you can't put a number on it, it's not real. Yeah? Which I think I've heard many, many times. And at some point, I got a bit grumpy with him, and I said, how much do you love your kids? Yeah? And I said, put a number on it. And he said, I can't. I said, but is it important? He said, of course, it's, it drives my life, you know. So that was the beginning of this thought that there is 
there, there are gaps. There are things there which you can't put down like this. I mean, if you saw this person around his kids, you could see how much he loved them. Yeah. And if you, I guess you can express these things in words, if it's a song or if it's a novel or if it's a play, but getting it down to that sort of business report, um, nugget type tweet context is so, so hard. And I think it does hold us back. Yeah. So what what do you see happening? Like uh, you've been in a million different situations, worked with a million different companies. What's happening? What are they missing by sort of sticking to this way of communicating, this way of working? Mm. I think you're missing a couple of things. Um, one of the first ones, which may not be so important in terms of business and so on, but I think it actually is, but is certainly important in terms of maybe justice, is that when we work strongly using words and other, let's say, abstractions of reality, then we exclude quite a lot of people. Yeah, There are people who don't have the typical literacy skills or abstraction skills or presentation skills or so on that we take for granted in most, let's say, professional contexts. But in service design especially, we're supposed to be co-designing. We're supposed to be working with people, not for people. And so when we bring those people into rooms and they're not confident, for example, picking up a Sharpie and writing something on a, on a, on a Post-it, we're missing their input. We're excluding them from that. Now, there are ways to do this. I've seen people like Snook, for example, do this really, really well and use, let's say, paper formats with those people. But generally, I find it's much easier to say to someone, show me, yeah, or walk me through that, or let's do it together, or let's build something. That is much more accessible to many, many people. But I think the main thing that we're missing with this in terms of, let's say, design output is we're just missing nuances. We're missing opportunities to create value. We're missing um, whole avenues that could be developed. A, a really short, short story. Um, yeah. As I say, I come from theatre, and many designers that I work with come from graphic or um, UX or product design, so posters and toasters, you might say. And so when those folks think, they think with a pen which is great, yeah? and visualizations, non-word visualizations are very accessible. But often there's, there's writing in there as well and so on, and that's fine. Um, but I come from theater, so I think with my body, I stand up and I try stuff. And that's what we try and do in, in our work. And I was working with a bunch of quite senior, let's say IT folks, you know, this was in a large organization, and we were doing some, some um, wireframing. Yeah, great tool, wireframing, you know, sketching out pages of an app, putting on the buttons, labeling the buttons, stuff like that. And they were doing this as part of a training context. It wasn't a real project. I want to make that very clear. Yeah. Um, but they did this great wireframe sequence. They were really fast. It looked really good. They didn't forget the back buttons. My goodness I me, mean, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they're like, we're done. We're ready. I want to go for lunch. And I said, we've got actually 15 minutes more before the lunch break. Can I ask you to try something else? And they were like, mm, you know, I said, please. And they said, okay, they were nice people. And I said, do you want to just act it out instead? Do you want to just forget the wireframe, forget the, the, let's say, transactional side of that? Because that's what it mostly is. There's an emotional layer over that. And do you want to just act it out? Have one of you be the app, one of you be the user in what's sometimes called concierge prototyping or genie in a bottle prototyping, I like to call it. Um, and they said, okay. And they tried this. And they were just blown away. They were just blown away how they were discovering whole avenues of value that they'd not seen before. And these things they were discovering were in the in-between. They were in the 
the spaces, in the pauses, in the gaps, in when somebody hesitated or somebody cocked an eyebrow, as we say. And then the person playing the app would say, uh, I see you're hesitating. What are you worried about? You know, this whole level of complexity, of nuance, which is very missing, I mean, very missing when we try and get things in black and white on paper. Hmm. For them, it was an absolute highlight of the whole project, uh, discovering this other way of, of, let's say, thinking by doing rather than thinking by scratching a pen on a piece of paper. I love this example. And I'm curious, uh, was there... A uh, did you see this impact the how, how did this impact them like did they change their behavior or, or was it more like a, a recognition okay there is something more beyond the buttons and the, and the screens well it's interesting to hear that those i did i did follow that company a bit after this because we had a long going relationship with them those individuals sort of drifted away but i saw what was happening in the organization um and i saw this was being used quite a lot um, and the reason it was being used is interesting because the reason to, that they chose to, let's say, sell this, the way they sold this in the organization was by saying it's faster, yeah, which it is. This is way, way faster than wireframing. Um, so you get iterating earlier, which is great. But it's interesting that the way they sold it was through the way which is easy to put into a word. It's faster. Yeah, you heard me grasping beforehand to say, well, there were more nuances and there were moments and there were looks. And that's really hard to explain. <laughs> it's mm. much easier to say it's faster. Years and years ago, when I was uh, when the rocks were still soft, um, there was a thing called compact discs, which came out and replaced vinyl. Yeah. Um, and there were all kinds of advantages, to this portability and so on. And it, it actually sounded better than most rubbish vinyl players did at the time today vinyl is high-end back then it was cheap and cheerful and often sounded awful um but they couldn't play it to people on the radio or on the tv and show this better this better quality because you wouldn't hear it through your tv speakers so they sold it by saying you can't scratch it which is patently untrue you can scratch a cd but it's much harder to scratch than a vinyl record is so that was the thing that was easy to say and that was the thing that became the dominant message and i think that happens to us quite a lot that's that's interesting yeah like how do you translate the benefits of the unspoken word the in between to something that is accepted and valued by people who usually aren't used to this way of working and, trans to, and transmissible yeah. as well, you know. What, what do you the, mean? The channels that we use, you know, it's, I can send an email around the organization. That's words. That's easy. I can make a voice note on WhatsApp or something. That's easy. It's much harder for me to send a, a prototype to you if it's yeah. a, a physical thing yeah. or to put you into an experience as well. So I do, I do acknowledge that this is more work in some cases. Yeah, the fidelity is different. It right? is. It's, it, it, it's uh, much higher fidelity and you're using way more sensory yes. information compared more channels, to more channels. More channels. Yeah. Mm. And, and that makes it more ambiguous. Um, one story, I don't know if it's true. I think it is. It's uh, you probably also have heard it by IDEO where they were doing something around the hospital and one of the things that they did was actually uh, a walkthrough through the emergency room and they lay on a bed with a camera, uh, like they, they enter the emergency room. And the, the scene that always stuck with me is that uh, in the movie that they played back is you see, I, I think it was like 30 minutes, somebody staring at the ceiling, mm -hmm. laying in the bed. Yeah. And 
on a journey map, there will be a sticky note called waiting. Um, how do you capture that 30 minutes of anxiety, of stress, of uncertainty? You don't, right? It's, it's not captured in the word waiting. And I think that's also what you're hinting at. Yeah. And I'm one of the people who really pushes uh, when I'm doing journey mapping people to add visuals. That's the first mm. step towards that. You know, uh, a very high level map, I guess you might use uh, like an icon of a clock to show waiting, you know, or a, the, the classic, uh, the egg timer, the, 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 uh, the sand clock in there. But um, I push people to, if it's appropriate, to actually show the situation because waiting in a business class uh, lounge at the airport is very different from waiting at a bus stop in the rain when all the seats are full and you have to stand outside the bus stop. You know, they're very different experiences. Um, and it's hard, yeah. I think it's useful in these situations to move first of all to that kind of visualization, yeah, to, to show as well as you can what's going on there Again, if, if that's honest, you can't you can cheat with this stuff. Yeah, if it's a very high level map, then waiting might be a very generic concept. But if it's a specific user instance, then it's appropriate to show you know the nose dripping water in the rain or whatever it is. Um, and that's that's the first step. And that's getting much easier as we can we have AI added into into mapping now and so on. So it's getting much easier to do things like that. Um, but even that has the problem if you've not experienced that yourself. You know, if if I don't know as a, as, as, as a man what it's like to be a woman waiting at a bus stop in a dark city at night. Yeah, That's, that's a very different thing. Um, so what are ways that can help me appreciate, if not experience, that more? I'm thinking here is I'm sort of uh, split between two uh, thoughts and feelings. On the one hand, I'm thinking like, okay, we're using a lot of words because we're trying to empathize with a lot of the people around us inside an organization who are used to verbal communication. They are comfortable mm. with that. Um, so we're doing them a favor. We're trying to accommodate their culture, their things that they are comfortable with. At the same time, um, we also want to empathize and uh, with our users and bring the mm. experience layer into this. So... Um, can we make an argument that using words in verbal communication is actually a good thing because it allows the rest of the organization who might see the creatives doing creative things uh, now be more approachable and accessible mm -hmm. and, and, and less scary to work with? I don't know. How do you see this? This is a huge one, isn't it? Because this, this is that constant tension that designers have between, if you like, accepting people as they are and, and serving them as they are but also knowing that some changes would be useful in organizations. You know, um, I've been working quite a lot around organizational evolution recently or thinking about it a lot. I've, there's, there's a, the most famous book is a book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux, talking about the evolution of organizations. He uses different colors from sort of red wolf pack criminal gang organizations through um, very static pyramidal feudal organizations to the current metaphor for most orgs, which is the machine metaphor, where all the words, input, output, performance, efficiency, all come from engineering. Yeah? And beyond that, towards models that are more like family-based, like maybe Ben and Jerry's, something like this, or what he calls um, organic models, uh, like Patagonia and so on, where you might design your own job and choose your own salary. And what's interesting in these is a kind of an evolution that you see towards more 
more freedom and towards more ambiguity and towards more flexibility in some things. That's really, really important. Um, I often play, I, I, I do lots of improv, and I use lots of improv exercises in my work, and I often play activities with people. I was going to say play games, I might not call it that, you know, that's the improv language, um, to to show them different types of co-creation. If we just throw a ball around, for example, or tell a story together, and you say, what helped that work really well? And they say, well, just letting go and just trying stuff and just not taking it too seriously, you know, not worrying about the rules. They make that kind of co-creation flow really well. And that's the opposite of what organizations usually do. Yeah, they don't want to let go of the rules. And that's that's fine. If you're building nuclear power stations, you should you should follow the rules. Yeah, They don't want to just try something. They want to worry about quality all the time. So I think it's important in organizations to understand that they have that there are two sides to this. There is a side where we need to be careful, be cautious, be precise. Yeah? And sometimes words are a good way to do that. Not always. And there are times when we need to be experimental, be open, be, be playful, and be ambiguous. And sometimes non-word channels are better at that. So it's knowing when to use which one. And to come back to your question about organizations and what they want, I usually have my first like crack the champagne moment in projects, you know, the metaphorically pull out a big cigar and smoke it, you know, um, when I get the feeling that the client organization is starting to understand there's more than one type of problem, that you can't solve everything with the same behavior. Yeah, that that behavior that you've learned in a certain context is great in that context, but a new context might need new behavior. Running the business, changing the business, they need different behaviors. Exploitation, exploration, they need different behaviors. And this is part of that, I think. Yeah, so uh, creating that recognition and understanding like if the solution is already known, probably there are auto there are existing ways you should mm. utilize and do them better faster cheaper mm. Mm. if the solution is yet to be discovered you need other ways to do that and i can imagine that that first creating that understanding and appreciation like and this is coming back to your example about how much do you love your kid like can mm. we ac actually ac can we can we solve that challenge using math mm, most mm. likely most likely not right so we need other ways um, do you do that actively, like helping people to sort of see what kind of challenge they're facing? Yeah, certainly. So using theatrical methods, I guess our most, our most basic work form is what we call investigative rehearsal or just rehearsal or just show me, you know, people talk about service walkthroughs or body storming is a similar technique, um, where we get folks to, I'm cautious to use the word act, but to recreate a situation here. Yeah, So they might take a prototype and play it through by acting it out in the room, or they might get some stories from their everyday life and act them out. And it's one thing is really, really striking. Um, and that is that when, if people look at a journey map, for example, yeah, and they see problems there, they approach those problems on a, on a logical level. Mm -hmm. Now they they go this this is not this is not good. I, I understand people are annoyed at this point. Yeah, so they they they're talking about emotion, but their their voices are cool and calm and collected. Yeah, when they start acting these things out, people like start 
punching their their hands or you know or, or slapping the desk and saying this is nuts you know getting getting genuinely angry or upset about things and that shows me that we're onto something there that we are that we are starting to get closer to to the human yeah which is not just a brain but is a is a whole organism and, and getting away from that intellectual um logical level yeah so <laughs> Spock and, and Bones, I guess, in the old Star Trek uh, episodes. You know, we have this logical self and we have this emotional self, and the truth is somewhere in between them. And, mm. But our organizations serve one of them much more than the other. I think our role within organizations and around these challenges is to help drive decision-making, yes. right? We're helping to drive people forward. What a general organization wants is objectivity. And th that's the opposite of what you've just described, like the human connection. Like they don't want subjectivity. They want to look at something and say, if I exclude myself as an individual, what, what do the facts tell me? They're looking for facts. Mm. How do we deal with this situation where people are looking for facts and you're advocating for, we don't want, we don't want facts. We want, I don't know, circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Well, we want both, I think. And it's really mm. interesting that point, isn't it? Because we're... We talk about customer experience, user experience, employee experience, are words you often hear in service design. And those are utterly subjective things. They are utterly subjective. That's the definition of them is they're subjective. We have MPS scores. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So you get things like one of the things like MPS, oh goodness, uh, which come along and, and, and try to put a, a number around that. And that's great because it tells you we have this common, this common, um, say viewpoint now we can all talk about it the same way and we say there's something to be done here but famously the number of the nps doesn't tell you what's to be done doesn't tell you what's wrong yeah there are listening stations and so on for that but you need to do qualitative research to figure that stuff out not just quantitative and just like we always need qualitative and quantitative research together yeah i think we also always need to make sure that we have explicit and implicit together because they both do things that the other does not do and Simply, there's a story that um, Eric Roscombe Abing and Damien Kernahan tell. Um, they published it, so I can I can talk about it. But they told it to me at a conference once about working with a big telco, yeah, um, in Australia, and this telco was not doing well on the customer experience front. And Eric and Damien were trying to get them to do that, and they tried lots and lots of types of logical persuasion with the numbers and the charts. And obviously, that's important. That's part of the pre-work to get the decision. But what actually made the decision was playing them a recording of one phone call between one user and one um, hotline employee, which ended up with both of them in tears. And it wasn't the words in that, because all the information in there was already known. Yeah, It was what was between the words. It was the catches in the breath. It was the sobbing. It was the, the empathy which comes from that which actually led this telco to say, okay, here's the millions, go and, go and do that. Um, and I think, again, we know, at least all the psychology I've ever read, I, I used to be, a, I studied psychology many years ago, um, implies that decisions are emotional. So we use these, the non-emotional, we use the logical, the, 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 the quantitative and so on, to, to post-justify emotional decisions. And that implies to our users as well. So if we want to examine what our users are experiencing, how they're making decisions, we also need to step inside that. We need to say, I'm going to, be, I'm going to experience this subjectively as well as objectively. 
and have both sides of that. To which extent uh, does the problem lie with us as a community, as a practice? And let me explain. <clears throat> so you've written books on this topic and uh, people learn from these books. We share examples, we share stories, but most of them are, are verbal and written things. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your opinion. To which extent do you see that the design community actually sees the value of the unspoken word themselves? So, because we can of course point to our business counterparts and say, it's, it's them, like they want words, but do we as a community appreciate the value enough of focusing on the unspoken word? What's your take on this? I think we're pretty good compared to many places that I've been. I mean, you'll see, for example, that uh, the portfolio is a really important thing in even in service design, though I don't really grasp how that could be the way. But, you know, because in a portfolio, you can read between the lines, you can you can you get impressions from that, which you can't get from someone's CV, their, their, their resume, or from an interview with them, you know, you, you, you see their work. Um, and People in design industry are using things like the Global Service Jam or other hack events as recruiting events to see what it's like to work alongside somebody before they employ them and so on. We do use prototyping. We do use visualization. So we're pretty, pretty good at this. Then comes the interface to the, to the decision makers. And at, that's the point where I think we might serve ourselves better to not only give them what they want, which is a three-word summary, yeah, <laughs> but to help them to experience what's really going on. And the story I just shared about about uh, Derek, uh, Damien and Eric's uh, project there is a good example of that, to actually give decision-makers subjective experiences of, of s service safaris, walk-alongs, you know, watch the testing, stuff like this. I think that's useful. And I think we could be doing more of that. And I think we would get more attention if we did more of that, precisely because it's a little bit uncomfortable. So then the big question becomes, either what's holding us back or reframed, how can we accelerate this? I think there's no one answer. I think this is a design question. I mean, um, I think it was you who said this first, but you say it wasn't. <laughs> the application of design is a design challenge, you know, or the, 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 the spreading, persuading people to be more designly is a design challenge. And so we need to understand what struggles those decision makers are, are facing and support them in solving those. So if we do give someone an immersive experience which persuades them and lets them understand things, we have to understand that they have an interface as well to their next colleague or to their, their boss or whomever, and they're still need, going to need to feed that person with information. So it might be around helping them to, to craft a thing which then fits the next, let's say, language need beyond them. What's stopping us? I think, I think generally... We're stuck in this in this tension between wanting to serve people how they are and having a feeling that's not always the best way. You know, that things could be easier if if people made decisions differently, if they worked a little differently, but not usually being mandated to do that. We're, we're mandated to change this user experience, and we know well if you guys approached users generally differently, or if you approached how you create value differently, this kind of stuff wouldn't happen. But we're not being paid to change the organization. We're being chained to, paid to, I don't know, fix the check-in or something like that. So that's just a tension of, of scoping, isn't it?
Mm. And one of courage is reaching beyond the scope. And courage is one of those subjective things. Like, how mm. do you grow confidence? How do you grow courage? Uh, step by step, I guess. Maybe um, if you sort of think back about all the examples and scenarios that you've been in, have you seen conditions in the environment that uh, maybe increase the likelihood that people exert this behavior? Like, are there certain things, patterns that you've seen across the years? I think there are. I think there are industries um, which are more fundamentally hands-on, more, more practical. If you think about um, hospitality industries, you know, hotels, restaurants, and things like this, tourism, um, these industries, in my experience, are much better at trying stuff. I mean, hotel managers, they, they walk around the hotel every day. They, they just do that. That's, that's part of their job. Yeah? Not many CEOs do that in their organization. Yeah? N never mind go and walk around their customer sites on a daily basis. Yeah? It's partly accessibility, but it's partly understanding, I think, that what we're, what's going on here is a million tiny things. It's not one thing. Yeah, and and walking through the hotel and smelling something funny in a corridor, yeah, because I don't know, because the paint's not dry or whatever, is really important. Um, and again, really hard to write on a post-it. Okay, weird smell, but what kind of weird smell? Yeah. Um, so I think those organisations, which are kind of the the get up and try thing organisations, are better at this. I mean, theatre, show business, show business is, is a very important industry. People don't don't realise how big it is. I think in in Germany. Um, which is known as industrial country, I think the entertainment industry comes somewhere between chemicals and steel, like in terms of actual turnover each year. So it's a really big thing. Um, we're good at that. You know, you really see in the rehearsal room in theatre, people don't discuss very much. Of course, there's lots of, lots of, of um, talking, but the chairs are uncomfortable, you know, the, the coffee's bad. So there's much more sort of, show me, show me another version, show me another version. And we don't even always try and verbalize what we've seen. We say, that was, that was interesting. There was interesting stuff in that. Can you give me more of the middle? Yeah, And then people will understand from having done it what is meant rather than it being expressed into words. So those kind of industries, I think, are good at this. Other ones where people are used to very cerebral work, yeah? to, to working with, with PowerPoint and Visio and, and whiteboards all the time. Yeah? Those folks find it harder to imagine there are other ways to experience or express the truth maybe here it's it's really a matter of changing behavior and changing habits and doing this on an ongoing basis i have to think about my days back at the studio where my my colleague and co-founder marcel had a poster behind us no prototype no meeting and i think it's maybe simple uh, mm. quotes and simple nudges like that that can help shift behavior so i'm thinking somebody's listening to this and nudging yeah yeah agreeing with everything we're saying and then they get back into the office and then like okay i'm still stuck in the same old environment and how do i change this and maybe it's it's small things like just bring a prototype to every meeting you're in you, regardless if that's a physical prototype or you have a mirror or mirror board in your next Zoom meeting, just show up and show things and people will get curious about how did you do that? Why are you doing this? Why are you always bringing stuff to the meetings? Uh, may right, maybe it's, it's just th these small steps in behavior 
in their rituals and, and leading by example through small things. I think you're very right. And I think oh, that's one of my favorite posters. I often quote that poster. I love it so much. Um, when we're asking folks to change, yeah, it's often been said people don't like to be changed. They don't mind changing so much if they see a need to do that. Yeah, um, Then pull seems to work more than push for me. So it's about two things. It's about making something interesting and then making it accessible. So there's two levels to this. What you're talking about, bringing the prototyping along, um, that's really good. That gets a different kind of conversation. People see things in the prototype, but you get the boundary object effect that different people see different things in there, that um, that they understand things about what's being what couldn't be said before, and they see it manifested in that prototype. Um, but then do they have the capacity and the tools to make the prototypes themselves? You know, that, that, that's the next step to, to enable this. Um, I mentioned the sport fashion companies down the road from us, and one of them, one of them has a really um, interesting prototyping space, uh, which is available to anybody for work and non-work projects. You can do what you like in there. I think that's really, really important. It's not just for the designers uh, to do cool designy stuff. Anybody can go down there and, I don't know, work on a, on a model for, the, for, for their hobby or, or 3D print a doorknob or something like this. Yeah? And that's very interesting because it gives people not just the interest but also the capacity to try this kind of stuff. I like theatrical tools for this because the capacity is you. You know, you have your you have your 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 voice and your body, and that's all you need to do this. Um, you you stand up and you try things, you act things out. For other things, there sometimes is a, a technical or at least a permission barrier between wanting to do it and being able to do it. So yes, small starts, but the small starts have to be not just in terms of doing it, but also enabling others to do it. There's maybe where the pull factor comes in. If you start out doing it for yourself because you see the value of going through the experience, capturing it, creating, I don't know, a, a prototype or making a diagram, visualizing something, showing it to people, if they see the value, they will come to you and ask you like, can you help me create? Can I also want to do this. I also want to have a visual or a diagram or live through this experience. So just start by doing it for yourself probably and, and share it with others um, and create that pull factor. But, but people will recognize the value. You, they will, you, don't have, they will. You, you don't have to sell it. Maybe that's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to communicate here. Yeah, I think yes and no. I mean, mm-hmm. um, what actually folks they experience my methods. They some of them enjoy them, some of them hate them. That's fine, you know. But they come, they come to me afterwards, and they don't usually say, "How do I do this?" Because it's usually pretty basic. This is stuff that kids do all the time. You, you play, you play things through, you act them out, you you build a thing, you know. They say, "How do I get my colleagues to do this?" Mm. That that that's the most common question I hear. So there is a degree of maybe selling is the wrong word, but a degree of um, communication persuasion that has to happen. And this is, again, where we get to those sort of two sides of the coin, you know, the, the, the explicit and the implicit thing. I find that when you're selling something new, using the word selling carefully, when you're trying to ask people to do something new, it is good to ask them in old words. You know, to use the existing paradigm of the organization to make a case for a new paradigm. So, for example, when I work, yes, I have rubber chickens in my pocket, but I wear a suit at work, usually. 
because that gets me taken seriously and I don't pull out the rubber chicken straight away. You know, mm -hmm. I, t I talk in, let's say, traditional models and languages first before I say, let's try something and then shift towards a more ver a, a, a less verbal way of working. Yeah, you start with the common ground and the common understanding and from there on you build upon that. And, and yeah, it makes complete sense. When, when you say people love it or hate it, like what's, um, what's maybe the biggest object objection that you hear or misconceptions that people have about this way of working, which is a very broad term, but I don't know. There's a lot of boss blaming. Um, my, my boss won't get this. I won't understand this. And then when you meet the boss, you find they're fine with it, you know, but that, that's, that's a general thing in organizations is that people lower down, if I can use those terms in the organization, see the upper levels as being very prescriptive and very fixed in what they do. When you get the chance to experience those upper levels are often very flexible and very, uh, very interested in weirdness. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, we're fighting some things here. So if I take my, my particular tool set, the theatrical one, yeah, um, that is misunderstood as a, a, a presentation, a facade, a fakeness, yeah, that we're trying to pretend to be things that we're not. And it's also often very closely related to a word which I try not to use, which is role play, uh, which is used very badly in many training situations. People have been burned by that, yeah. So people have often been embarrassed using these kind of these kind of tools before, yeah, because they've been judged or not given time to prepare. I mean, the situation with role play usually is that you're in a training course and someone says, this is your role, this is your role, now do it. You get no safe space, you get no warm-up, you get no chance to mess up. And then we'd spend a couple of hours telling you how crap you were at that, yeah? So I know people, this is not a joke, who literally have in their employment contract, I will not be required to do role play. And that's more than one person I know who has an employment contract because these tools have been used to embarrass people before. So when we need to do new things with people, a lot of the time investment that we have is making that safe space that makes it possible to do this. After a while, it just goes because it's faster, it's easier, people start doing it automatically. But at the beginning, we need to make people feel safe. That's a very helpful insight here because I think what maybe people see the value but probably the thing that's keeping most people back is in an organizational environment you don't want to look silly you yeah. don't want to look stupid yeah so um obviously it's it's these environments are very risk averse mm. so you're not going to experiment you're not going to try new things even though they might have value you'd rather like yeah taking mm. the risk of being embarrassed is is Yes. Probably holding you back. And this, this applies to design in general. If you think how early we show things, yeah, you know, we, we show sketches, we show notes, we show quote shitty first drafts, unquote. Yeah, we show um, very early prototypes. And that's not common in organizations. You know, I, I, I work with people sometimes and we're doing like a journey map, you know, and it's we, we try to make our templates look very sketchy to really encourage scribbling. But people will still prepare the journey map first in their notebook and then transfer it onto this, you know, <laughs> template 
before they show it to people. And you go, no, the, the template is, is, is your workspace. It's okay to mess it up. Ooh, I don't want to make mistakes. Yeah. And the problem is that we apply design usually to changing situations, situations that have changed, where there's new value to be created. And in those situations, we have to experiment. And if you are only going to do experiments which get positive results, you're not really experimenting. Yeah, you're doing what you already know. So, again, this is one of those situational um, uh, questions: Are we now running the business, or are we changing the business? And in that context, embarrassment is appropriate. There's that famous saying: If you're not embarrassed by your prototype, you showed it too late. <laughs> yeah? And I think that's very, very true. When people go to design school, one of the things that they hate most of all at the beginning are the crit sessions, where people come and criticize their work and say, this was, you know, you missed that here, or this derivative, or whatever you get, all kinds of feedback. Later on, they love that because they understand how valuable it is, but they have to get through that wave of embarrassment or shame even um, at f first. My mother is a, or was a primary school teacher, a, a teacher for young children, and she probably hate this, uh, this, um, this comparison, but the basic model of primary education is the teacher sets a task, there's one correct answer, you solve it in your best handwriting. Yeah? And that's kind of the model that most of us have taken into our work. You know, there's, there's a right way of doing this, maybe different colors of that, but it's, there's a right way of doing it and there are many wrong ways and I do it in my best handwriting. And that's the opposite of design. Yeah. So design is, is, first of all, we question the question. Where's this question come from, teacher? Why not a different question? Yeah, it, What's behind your question? I mean, I'm curious. And then we say, there's obviously not one answer. There could be 100 answers. How about I give you 10, 15 sketchy ones and you see which ones you like and we develop that. You know, that is, that's design. But it yeah. seems ridiculous. Again, there are a lot of loops and, and uh, cycling back to other parts of our conversation here. First, recognizing the type of challenge that you're dealing with and also mm. understanding if the people around you recognize the, <laughs> the same thing. Um, because if they, they see that there is a single truth and uh, we just need to optimize the existing situation, it will be very hard for you to create a safe space for experiments when Absolutely. everybody is focused on there is a single truth, uh, truth, uh, you have to be the expert, come up with the, the right answer. Um, that's not an environment where design in general is going to flourish, right? You it's, need... it's really hard. And this is why yeah. organizations often have found some success in, in separating out a kind of experimental function. This is a skunk works model, you know, where you, you put some weirdos in a building at the, other, at the end of the campus and let them blow things up. You know, Th that is interesting. And with the breadth of the things that we're looking at in service design, we're not just, just doing technical innovation. We're doing things that affect all the employees, affect you know, millions of customers and so on. That doesn't work so well because it's, it's, so, it's so much of a mutual responsibility across the organization that rather than having a special place where we experiment, it seems to me to be more useful to have a kind of a flip-flop head yeah, where you say I'm in experimental mode now. Now I'm in in optimization mode. Yeah, I'm I'm exploring. I'm exploiting. Whatever are the metaphors that you use, and encourage people to to see this is that kind of context, and now it's changing back towards that kind of context. And this makes a lot of sense because the challenges that organizations are dealing with aren't as 
static as they maybe used to be. We every every challenge an organization faces is almost always has some unknown to it, right? It and is. there is uh, it's not just a matter of exploitation. There is always something new, something like whether it's the needs and desires of your customers that are always evolving. Uh, maybe it's new technology. So having a very uh, rigid and linear mindset towards problem solving, it's like you're probably, that's, that's not going to get you to the results mm. that you're looking for. I think that's very, very true. And this is what people like Lalu and so on talk about in this kind of writing about the evolution of organizations is that that dominant model of organizations as machines with input, output, efficiency, and performance and all these words, yeah, that is a an industrialization model yeah that's come from the age of the factory yeah and that age is still very much around we still use manufactured uh, technology all the time and so on and, and other things but in an information economy and in a knowledge economy and a change economy and so on that's not the only way to do things and if you look at even go back to the 1920s and look at Schumpeter and the 20s or 30s, I forget the the cycles of of change, yeah, of of, uh, of um, inventions, yeah, and how how they how they degrade uh, over time, that seems to be accelerating. So it does seem things are changing. That the 21st century seems to be a faster moving century than the 20th century was, and the 19th century before that. So I think speed and the 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 importance of change is really a big part of that because these behaviors that feel risky because they are ambiguous because they they look between the lines they feel risky no it's risky not to do this it's risky to believe that you understand the problem and that you can solve it with your own tools that's risky in a changing world in a static world it's great in a changing world doing the same thing you did last year is dangerous and then we need to follow up with another episode where we dive into organizational design and how we create <laughs> incentives for people to actually uh, excerpt this behavior. But that's that's for another episode. Adam, I want to close off our conversation here with maybe a call to action. So you could muster the service design show community to do something after hearing the story. What would your call to action be for them? I would suggest that you take a situation that you face at work regularly, yeah? One between, maybe between colleagues, yeah? We have to persuade somebody or explain something to somebody and try to find a way to do it which uses fewer words. So maybe you move towards visualization, maybe you go for a walk and experience a thing together, maybe you build a thing together. There will still be words in there. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we all become Marcel Marceau, yeah? But I'm saying, can you enrich that verbal channel with other channels and see where that takes you. If you want to practice that, check out the Global Service Jam. I second and recommend that as well. Well, that brings us to uh, the end of this conversation, Adam. Thanks uh, for coming on again and uh, having this uh, exploratory conversation with me. We talked a lot about not using words so that's quite interesting uh <laughs> i that, hope we were able to paint a picture beyond. it was challenging it was challenging and you <laughs> we've i felt us groping at times because we're trying to talk about not talking and that's interesting in itself <laughs> that is that is for sure i hope we uh we we managed uh, somehow um anywho thanks again for sharing your wisdom for and having uh having a, a peek inside what's going on and keeping you busy at the 
uh, these days. Thank you very much, Mark. What's your biggest takeaway from our conversation with Adam? If you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, you can actually leave a comment. So please do that and let's continue the conversation over there. I hope that Adam's stories encourage you to embrace the designly way of working even more. You have a lot to offer, even though it might take some time for others to see and recognize that. But don't let that stop you or doubt the value that you bring. Finally, I want to remind you that if you're an in-house service design professional looking to sharpen yourself, the Circle community might just be the perfect fit for you. Inside the Circle, you'll find a welcoming home where you can connect with passionate service designers from companies worldwide, learning from their successes and failures. And the best part, this opportunity repeats month after month, helping you to stay sharp and on top of your professional game. Joining the Circle community involves a simple application process. To check if you qualify to become a member, visit servicedesignshow.com slash circle for all the details. And you'll also find the link in the show notes of this episode. So don't miss out on your chance to be part of the circle and build a service design dream team around you. My name is Mark Fontaine and I want to thank you for spending a part of your day with me. It was an absolute honor and pleasure. Please keep making a positive impact and I'll catch you very soon in a brand new episode of The Service Design Show. See you then.